You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. We're really looking forward to our second Wider Lands Renewal Retreat at the very end of October. Yes, it's going to be right here in my backyard in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a really special occasion and it really did seem to be truly transformative. And parents who attended last time were very keen to come together for another retreat. Yeah, and for those of you who didn't attend last time, this is a retreat for parents who are seeking a deeper understanding of themselves and of their gender-questioning child. And it's also for parents who need some time out for some self-reflection and who want to parent with more confidence. Yeah, so please join me, Stella, and our dear friend and colleague, Lisa Marciano, in Scottsdale, Arizona this fall. The Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, and you can also Google Wider Lens Renewal Retreat Arizona. We hope to see you there. Professor Tony Atwood has specialized in autism spectrum disorders since he qualified as a clinical psychologist in England in 1975. He's written two books, Asperger's Syndrome, A Guide for Parents and Professionals, and The Complete Guide to Asperger's Syndrome. Between these two books, they've sold over 800,000 copies and have been translated into dozens of languages. He's been the keynote speaker at many Australian and international conferences, and he presents workshops and runs training courses for parents, professionals, and individuals with Asperger's syndrome all over the world. Today, Dr. Atwood helps us better understand the autistic traits that we find in gender-questioning teens today. We covered this topic alone in episode 17, but felt there were things we missed and wanted to clarify. As Dr. Atwood informed us before we hit record, His expertise is in autism, so he may not be as well-versed in the intricacies of contemporary gender identity activism or in all of the studies around things like gender dysphoria, transition, and assistance. But his knowledge of autism in children and teens is vast, and he was really engaging and lovely to speak to. We asked Dr. Atwood about special interests or the fixations and narrow obsessions that are common in autism. We asked him about the difficulty kids have socializing and how immediate affirmation in an LGBT peer group could be experienced. We also delve into the vulnerabilities and strengths of autistic adolescents and how parents can best support their children even if they're making very rigid or urgent demands. Dr. Atwood highlights the difficult position that parents may be in when their child is highly distressed but may be rushing into a process he or she may not fully understand. We also got to explore the new world that is opened up to teens via computers and social media and the tricky landscape that complicates a very normal adolescent search for identity. Here's our conversation with Dr. Tony Atwood. Dr. Tony Atwood, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. There's a time zone difference uh, between Europe and Australia. So for me, it's just after seven in the morning and 10 in the evening for you guys. Well, I'm in Europe. I'm in Ireland, but Sasha's way over in Phoenix. So we're in three countries. And I'm in Arizona. (laughs) That's right. So it's two o'clock for me. Crossing the globe. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely we are. And so we're, we're so glad to have you on. Um, before we hit record, we were just kind of touching on the way we have recorded a, an episode in the past about the overlap between gender dysphoria and autism. And like we were saying, we feel like there were certain things that we should have probably approached differently, or maybe we wanted to get into more depth. And um, Dr. Atwood, you shared with us that you don't know very, very much about our podcast. So we wanted to just kind of give you a bit of information about where we're coming from. So um, as I was explaining, right now, there seems to be this predominant approach when a young person begins to question their gender. And that approach is called the affirmation model or gender affirmation therapy. And this approach kind of looks at the child's gender questioning as something that we must actually follow the lead of the child, almost no matter where that lead takes us. And so Stella and I have been, for many years now, uh, attempting to kind of sound an alarm about the importance of taking a psychological approach, which un understands this within the adolescent context that everything else happens during these teenage years. So we advocate for a slower process, more of an exploratory process, perhaps a symbolic understanding of what's going on. And we really do believe that the best way to help a young person is to give them the freedom to express themselves however they like, but perhaps avoiding any medical intervention because sometimes the risks and medical burden of such a decision is very, very complicated. And uh, sometimes a young person may not even fully understand or appreciate that pathway. So we kind of take a slower approach to gender and more of a, a psychological approach. And I'm a psychologist. So I, <laughs> I can resonate with that. I, I, I'm, I, there's a question is, yes, we can. Whereas my question is, why? Yeah, that comes up in medicine. I know, Stella, you've said this before, just because a doctor can do something, should they necessarily? So Dr. Atwood... These days, we can do so much that it's, it's actually mind-boggling what, what medicine now offers us. It, it seems to be offering us, for example, you know, Prozac, and there's all sorts of things that we are being offered, let's say anti-anxiety and stuff. And it's like, before we take it, we need to think, should we take it? There's there's a huge kind of crossing kind of, that's almost becoming kind of philosophical about what we should take, because now medical science and medical advances have offered us almost... Uh, a multitude, I would say. But you were going to ask him something, Sasha, so <laughs> go on in. Yeah, I was just going to ask you to, to elaborate on that. So you said, you know, the question you ask yourself as a psychologist is why? Kind of keep going from there. How, how else might you conceptualize or try to work your way around this question of, of gender and autism? Okay, I'm meeting somebody at a certain point on a journey, and the journey began quite some time ago. Often began a long time before parents are aware of these issues. These are thoughts that the person may have. They've kept them as private thoughts for quite some time. They may have sought information <clears throat> on the internet. They may have met people at uh, secondary school uh, who can give them some information. And it's then something that becomes, how shall I put it, um, a thought and then an action and I'm trying to work out why do you want to change gender? What is it about your gender that you don't like? How will your life be different by changing gender? And really understanding the complexities with someone 
who is developmentally young. One of the things that we find with autism is that the person's level of emotional maturity may not be at the same. In fact, invariably is not at the same as their chronological age or intellectual maturity. So although you've got a chronological age of a 13, 14 year old, actually emotionally, they are at 11, 12 years old. You also have someone who has often problems with what we call executive functioning, planning, organizing, but also determining the consequences, the long-term consequences, which may be difficult for that person to conceptualize life in the future of how it's going to be. In other words, you have a problem that you're facing now and you want an instant and as fast as possible solution to your angst, to your concerns. And that urgency to resolve the angst can lead to an acceleration of a process that really does need careful thought. Why do you think there's such a correlation between autism and gender? Myself and Sasha have discussed this, but what's your own take on that? I I think in autism, first of all, uh, the social conventional boundaries are not so clear. Uh, you, you, you question those, you're different from those. Uh, so you're not necessarily going to be uh, constrained in a way <clears throat> by conventional views of uh, gender, sexuality, um, crushes, interests and so on. So it, there's going to be a difference in that way. But also in autism, especially in early and, and teenage years, early teenage years, is the concept of self. All teenagers will go that through that. <clears throat> Who am I? Who am I going to be? I'm no longer a child. I am changing. <clears throat> I am changing in terms of my physiology, but also I'm changing in terms of, of thinking. Friendships are changing and so on. And in autism, you often don't like change. But you are in an isolation, exploring the concept <clears throat> of self. Who am I? The existential, philosophical Jean-Paul Sartre angst of what's the point of life? Who am I? Where do I fit in? Now, in autism, you're going to do that deeper and as a solitary pursuit. Now, other kids will say, I'm thinking of of area, and their friends will say, oh, yeah, yeah. And, And they will discuss it. They'll clarify their thinking by talking and they will have the opinion of their peer group, which is so very valuable to them of the options and who am I? Oh, no, no, you're, you're okay. I know you're worried about that, but no, etc. And get the affirmation from peers. Now, one of the problems is that an autistic individual who joins the transgender community will get affirmation, but it's affirmation in a particular direction. And what they're seeking is affirmation in various ways. <clears throat> so the person has a, a deeper self-analysis And that may include a range of options that would not be considered by other teenagers. It may be there for a moment. If I change gender, what would be the difference is, oh, no, no, I'll stay as I am. Here, they take it to a much greater depth and breadth in the perspective of alternative options. That's included. May then be recognized, ah, this could be the solution to my problems. That's what I want. Mm. I'm really curious because you you lifted up the the peer relationships that may be different for someone with autism. And I I'm aware that at least with a lot of young people I've worked with because they're 
kind of low support needs. They're very, very intelligent. There's often a real desire to connect, but maybe a struggle in how to do so. So in my experience, sometimes when a young person begins to, let's say, experiment with a different way of presenting their gender or certain labels, right? Like labels can become very, very important in the names and the pronouns. Um, it also facilitates certain types of friendships and relationships that now have a different set of rules. So for example, whereas with like a more typical peer group, you have to make eye contact and exchange information back and forth and you can't dominate too much of the conversation and you can, you know, you have to do all these complicated, subtle things. Sometimes within an LGBT peer group, for example, everybody's an automatic friend because you're part of the same club. And there isn't as much scrutiny on some of the oddities or the quirky behavior. So I find it interesting because sometimes it can help bridge a gap where a child may be struggling to connect and really missing out on a social de you know, desire. A lot of teenagers are wanting acceptance. They want to connect. And an autistic individual is desperate to connect. Now, what I found from my clinical experience, <clears throat> sometimes they may connect, but with those who are engaged in alcohol and drugs. Mm. They want to connect, and it'll be those who are involved in criminal activities, and they're set up by those criminal, uh, <laughs> should we say, in inverted commas, peers or friends, to do various things, but at least uh, I'm accepted by the group. When the police uh, call, did you do that? Yes, I did. So you're looking for a, a connection with a group of people. Um, if it's obviously those who are involved with uh, computers or looking after animals and things like that, then that's fine. And you meet a lot of like minded individuals. But I think in autism, you have a sense of connection. Is there a world that I belong? A lot of the special interests in autism are trying to find a world I belong in. Science fiction, Star Wars, Star Trek. Hogwarts, etc., uh, Japanese anime, and all those sorts of things and films. So you're forever feeling an alien. You want to find your tribe, your culture. And this can be something that appears to be, that's what I'm looking for. People who have a tolerance of my eccentricities, they don't seem to notice them. They are very affirming of me. This is heaven. This is what I've always sought. And that's very intoxicating. And do they find their tribe often? Or is this a kind of a continuous search? Well, yes, amongst that group, there is that degree of acceptance and so on. Um, it, it's something that that person really uh, enjoys. But a characteristic of autism is a research assistant. They will go and find information. They will become an encyclopedic uh, expert. They will be the professor of mm. this. <clears throat> And I've known in gender dysphoria that some of the teenagers know more about endocrinology than the endocrinologists and re yes. refer to all the research articles on the endocrinologists. Oh, yeah, I've read that one. And, oh, that's interesting. Um, and so they are valued by the group because of their tenacity, their seeking of knowledge. They're the expert. What happens when this goes, oh, yeah, well, you'll do this, that and the other. They become the doctor of the group. I want to share just a quick story because I was working with a young woman who uh, has since desisted. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, Dr. Atwood, but desistance is when you, when a young person identifies as trans at some point and then they change their mind and revert back to their natal sex. And anyway, she and I were working together when she was trans identified and she was 
you know, within her GSA group, really a leader because she knew all the labels and all the flags and all the identities and what they mean. And interestingly, through the process of her own self-discovery, and also she had some kind of coming to terms with her autism to do. After many, many years, she kind of decided that she wasn't in, indeed trans and ended up giving a presentation about autism and gender dysphoria. So you're so right about this kind of position as the leaders and the educators, and it can go in many different directions depending on where the exploration leads. Yeah. Now, this, this leads me to my role as a, as a clinical psychologist is self-identity. Who are you? Irrespective of your gender, what is your personality? What are your personality qualities? What are your abilities? Who are you? And so when I work with an individual who's considering changing gender, <clears throat> I will say, okay, let's look at your personality qualities. Let's look at your ambitions, your values, etc., to get to know yourself better, because you're going to make various decisions. And it's important that those are decisions based on a realistic appraisal of who I am, who would I like mm, to be. Mm-hmm. So I tend to work on various strategies for self-identity. Who are you? Yeah, that's great. And do you think that, uh, you know, this is just one, do you think parents, when they think that they have, let's say, an autistic teenager and their special interest is become gender, it feels like that has taken over them, and they become very intense and urgent around name changes and, let's say, pronouns and stuff like that. Do you have a stance on this? Do you have an approach? Do you have any strategies around that? I think it's very difficult for parents because they know that their child is actually in a state of distress. Um, and the response is quite a dramatic one. And parents are often much more aware of the long-term consequences, no grandchildren, for example, or all sorts of things that may be occurring. And so they want their son or daughter's happiness, but it seems to be that it is in a direction for which they feel that the rate of movement along the pathway to changing gender may be one where they want more caution, they want more thoughts, they're more... Uh, aware that there's a degree of emotional energy in trying to get this done fast without Mm -hmm. intellectual, logical reflection. Mm -hmm. So it's emotion-driven rather than necessarily logically driven. Mm -hmm. And do you you have any views around the social transition as opposed to the medical transition? That let's say they want to change... Oh, social transition. Yeah. Okay, yes, please. Absolutely. If you want to do that, do it. That's fine. <laughs> if you, you change your hair, change your clothing, uh, all those sorts of, lots of things you can change do. Change your pronouns. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's fine. I'm just concerned when the surgeon appears or the um, endocrinologist appears and so on. So, uh, my view is if you want to explore who you are and your gender, fine, please do that. I think it's a great idea. You're on a road of self-discovery. This is one of the things you can discover, but it's a road that you can return from if you want to. So if you are going to, if you're born male and you want to become more female orientated, absolutely you can do that. If you're female and you want to become more male, there are ways of being able to do that. And what I will do is go through how can you present yourself and explain yourself to other people 
so that they will accept you and what you're doing. So it's acceptance we're looking for. But mm. it, it's really exploring this, yes, definitely, but without necessarily making quite dramatic decisions. But well, I, I will. I, I am dying to say this, and I know parents will be will be shouting at the, the podcast device asking me to say it. Some people say that with an autistic understanding, that if you change their pronouns or their names, they have a very literal understanding. So if you call me he, him, and I, I am therefore a man, that that literal understanding is something not to be toyed with. No, I, th- I think this is a very serious matter, um, and it, it really does look at how does the person perceive themselves and how do they react. I often find that that parents will, for personal pronouns and so on, uh, make mistakes, and of course they are then told off for me. I'm I'm not he, I'm a she, and how dare you? And and uh, uh, part of autism is to correct errors. <laughs> when a person makes an error in the pronouns, you are told off r- rightly. <laughs> about that so you learn by the consequences to use particular phrases but as much as the autistic person is changing their concept of self parents are being uh, expected to change their concept of their child and they're going down a pathway and there may be issues that they need to address and that may be sometimes that you can get parent groups and so on to support each other in a way of how can I support my child um, but how do I get support? Mm. I'm also thinking just about the statistics we have about social transition. Um, It's often touted as something that is very easy to reverse from and I guess hypothetically yes because there isn't a medical intervention but from a psychological perspective it seems that social transition creates a sort of pathway towards medical transition. And so when we look, for example, at desistance rates, um, children who were kind of treated in a more neutral manner and given time to work through their gender questions, desist at a pretty high rate, something between 60 and 90% of children who claim a different identity will desist and return to their birth sex if they go through adolescence. But some recent data came out that shows when we socially transition children, they seem to persist and then go on to medical intervention. So I I wonder if there's something about that kind of concretizing uh, response from the adults that makes it harder for a young person to treat it like an exploration. And then maybe the young person finds it to be more of a solidifying or something. I mean, what do you think? It does have that capability of, of, we're talking about affirming that it is a step in a direction and then they take the next step forward rather than reversing. I think that's a possibility. But what I'm looking for here is a sense of compromise Mm. because I think we do need to do a, a compromise for the individual and say, yes, if you want to change your clothing, hairstyle and so on and see how it goes. This is very difficult because you're, you're, what would be the right thing to do? In hindsight, 20 years' time, you may go back and say, I should or shouldn't have made that decision to encourage or discourage. Uh, But you don't know that. You make your decision on the information you have at the time. And you have a teenager who is very distressed, and you are trying to alleviate their distress as best you can. So it's very difficult for parents to say, no, you can't, 
when that person is, is clearly distressed. So this is something that the parents um, have great difficulty coming to terms with because this is their whole world has changed in terms mm-hmm. of their child's future from what they thought. Mm-hmm. Can I shift gears and ask you kind of a similar but different question? I've heard you talk a little bit about how sometimes people with autism may be more vulnerable to kind of like what you alluded to earlier, maybe being taken advantage of by a group that has nefarious intent or um, I'm wondering about like extremism. And I know a lot of young people with autism, their special interest is the computer and the internet, and they spent inordinate amounts of time online. And I, I have seen certain young people get into some bizarre kind of groups online with some fringe ideas, and they seem kind of vulnerable to adopting pretty radical ideas or radical beliefs. I'm I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that vulnerability. Okay, in, in autism, subtlety is rare. It, it tends to be the intensity. And in many ways in autism, the problem is the intensity. Uh, too much or too little. And in that desire for connection, you're looking for someone you can connect with. And as you say, that can include a connection to a political group. Now, you are based in the United States where there are issues of extreme right wing groups. What I do find in autism, if there is a political movement, it tends to be right wing rather than left wing. So it's more um, intolerance, very black and white. Shall we oh, say? you'd be very surprised, I think, at some of the young people that we've met. <laughs> That's well, really interesting. Keep going. I think the extremist is exactly where it lands, but I don't agree yet. But keep going. Mm, I, I think the extremes mm-hmm. of either is where they land, which. Yes, it I is. Um, but should we say that the, the extreme right are more um, active in, in recruiting various people? So I will have conversations with some teenagers and I'm I'm concerned about their extremist views in a variety of ways. And I'm wondering what's feeding those particular views. And it may be part of the group that that's encouraged. It's very black and white and so on. But yes, there is a concern uh, that an autistic individual may move in directions that cause parental concern. Mm. Uh, And that's what I'm concerned about. Parents are saying, we're not sure of the wisdom of this. We're not sure if it's the real person. Are they being fed and encouraged in a particular direction? Mm -hmm. And what do you say to combat that if you do feel that they are being encouraged on the computer? Have you an approach around that? Well, they need to, uh, the teenager needs to talk to somebody outside the family about the first of all why do you find this valuable what's the uh, point from your perspective it meets whatever need okay dot 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 right so on the one hand it's a sense of connection it's a sense of emotional support it is all sorts of things that are going on right okay now let's look at different people's perspective we've done your perspective let's have a look at your parents perspective in this let's have a look at society's perspective let's have a look at your siblings perspective and so we're saying look often in life as you mature you have to compromise there are certain things you'd like to do that you can't do uh you can learn to drive a car but you're not to drive at top speed 
in dangerous areas, for example. We have restraints in society. We have rules and regulations. And there are rules and regulations for the benefit of society. So sometimes there are things that you would like to do. You see something in a shop, you can't walk out with it. Otherwise, you're charged with stealing. So there are certain limitations that we will have. So it is a concern that often on the computer, the person is going in areas that uh, may feed various interests. And that can be all aspects of computer access. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have, bringing up computers, do you have any thoughts about this? Because I've heard you discuss that sometimes the computer is the young person's special interest. And so even though it might be valuable to set limits around screen time and things like that. It also maybe gets a bit more complicated when this is the way the young person decompresses or kind of relieves their stress. So if you have a a young teenager, maybe a boy with autism, who's maybe using his computer too much or parents find him in a dangerous place, how, how do you recommend for parents to help set some limitations around it without interfering too much with the special interest, as we might call it. How do parents do that? Okay, first of all, is is take the autistic person's perspective. Uh, What do you enjoy about it? Well, it's social connection. I actually play with other people. It's a sense of excitement and enjoyment. And in my life, there's very little I'm excited about. I'm not excited about social occasions, but I am excited about the game. It gives me a sense of euphoria. It gives me a sense of identity and achievement. I am a master of this game. I am appreciated by others. When I go online, they go, great, you're here. Let's mm-hmm. get a group together and let's explore whatever it is. And that acceptance and affirmation of who you are, again, is very, very intoxicating. It has other functions. It has a function of being a thought blocker. That is, if you're anxious and depressed when you're engaged in the computer, you block it. Now, Mm -hmm. the problem is that you are compressing and suppressing the anxiety and depression. And the moment you switch off the computer, that comes back. So often the negative reaction to switching the computer off is not that the game is over, is that they're now going to be flooded with a deluge of anxiety and depression that they've had previously. And that's what parents see, is that Mm. intense emotion in that situation. So we go through, okay, these are the advantages of uh, computers for you. But let's have a look at what are the psychological and the medical issues. The medical issues can be sedentary, that you're not getting enough exercise. Psychologically is what you're missing out on, real life interactions. You're missing out on other forms of pleasure. This has become your exclusive form of enjoyment. There are other things that you can do. It's playing with animals. It's being in nature. It's other things that you can do that will give you a sense of enjoyment. So we need a compromise. Let's be honest here. How many hours a day and a week do you engage in computers? Right. Over the next week, we'll see if we can cut it by 15 minutes a day. That's all. Now, we will try and see if we can have some encouragement for doing that and so on. But there are now uh, aspects of computers that are addictive. The, The games designers deliberately design them to be addictive. They want addicts. And the same as you get for alcohol and drug dependency, there are now mentors and there are computer groups that will go through with 
ex-computer game addicts will talk about. And, for example, one of the things I'll say, look, you're playing for five hours, uh, and the actual statistics is that your performance will definitely increase over the first hour, two hours. But by the time you reach three hours, you've reached the peak. You will now, for the next two or three hours, it will decrease. You're not as good, and that's going to make you. So if you're going to play, play for two to three hours and stop. Take a break because the rest of it is you're going to get upset with yourself. You're not as good as you were at the beginning. So it's going through that and having somebody, yes, you're going to have the temptation to do that because you're feeling anxious and depressed. This is the Prozac. This is the way of resolving it. Okay, there are other ways of resolving your thinking in terms of anxiety and depression. There are other things that you can do. So it's really bringing in not only a, a compromise of gradual reduction, but you're also needing to help not just with emotions, but social skills. The person is not developing their social skills. Mm -hmm. They're feeling that they're useless. So we need to do some drama activities. We need autistic support groups where you can meet other people and talk about your games. But at least you're actually interacting with somebody, not a screen. And you're saying, okay, the cheat sheets and the cheat codes and so on. And they're all excited because they're doing that. But they're having fun and they're enjoying each other's company and knowledge. So it's finding a gaming group and uh, developing those skills. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Um, to, to broaden it out a little bit, I know you've worked in autism for so many years. How do you think the field of autism has changed in the larger sense, because it feels as I'm a non-expert, it feels to me that it, it, seismic changes have happened. Um, and I'll, I'll let you add to that and have another question coming up after that. Go on. OK. Uh, for me, I've been exploring autism for over 50 years. It was 1971 when I met two very severely autistic kids. And that's all we knew. The Mm -hmm. severe autism, the silent, aloof, no speech in a world of their own, often special school and then institutions. And that was the life trajectory of an autistic child. I was there at the beginning when we discovered the continuum or dimension of autism that goes to those who can talk, uh, but maybe too much. I mean, for one group, oh, please, can we get you talking now? Can you please shut up? (laughs) (laughs) talking about dinosaurs Uh, we want a conversation here not a monologue um and you get those who are isolated to those who are wanting to have a friend and and wanting to engage and and so on um so the what we've learned is the variety of expression of autism in various degrees the pattern is still there the sensory sensitivity the interests the difficulty in People And in in autism, the essential component is a difficulty understanding people. Others are born with intuitive ideas of how to read a face, how to socialize. Kids will do it without thought. And they are 
joining together, never met each other before, but within five minutes, they're all playing happily together. We hope happily. But the autistic kid said, how do you do that? How do you know when to join in? How do you know what to do? So they're needing guidance. So we're exploring more how the world is perceived by an autistic individual. And one of the things that we've found is that we're getting a lot of information from able autistic individuals. The first two autistic kids that I met couldn't talk. Mm -hmm. But we now have uh, individuals who may have been autistic when they were younger. Now they're talking fluently. And why did you fat? Why did you rock? Why did you not like the flavor of something? And they can give you insightful and articulate explanations of why. That's fascinating. So the knowledge in autism, yes, is in the research. Yes, it's in the clinicians. But I would say over the most recent decades is a recognition of autobiographies and autism support groups that can provide the connection. And when we were talking about gender dysphoria and so on, one of the things I strongly advocate for is to join an autism group. If you're going to have a friend, sometimes the best friend is an autistic person because they're not going to be bitchy and mean. They're going to cope with silences. They're not going to be judgmental. So if you're going to connect to a group and we're going to do a bit of social engineering Find the autistic group, the robotics group, or, or should we say, um, it can be a group of people. If you're going to connect with them, someone from your natural culture and get that connection that way. Another thing we found is uh, autistic girls and women, where previously it was viewed almost exclusively as a boy. A picture of an autistic kid, it's a boy. But now the ratio of boys to girls is two to one. And we're learning about camouflaging uh, autism as a way of several reasons that camouflaging occurs. One is to join in. You, In autism, you're very good at systems and patterns. And you look at people to find the systems and patterns of social. What are the social rules? You become the social policeman, yes, because those are the rules. You learnt them after incredible difficulty. And when people break the rules, it really upsets you because you've been working on that principle for a long time. Um, so you observe, analyze and imitate. You create a mask. You become a false persona. Uh, but another reason you do it is not only to fit in, but it is to stop being bullied and teased. Because if you're in a group, you're less likely to be bullied and teased. So you do it as a preservation and a connection with people. Um, so camouflaging is not exclusive for the girls. The boys we've now discovered will do it as, as well. Sometimes the boys will do it when they want a partner and they will act the Hollywood romantic hero style person. They will watch romantic movies and learn the script and I know what to do uh, because I need a partner. I need someone to replace mum. So um, it's really looking at the camouflaging that can occur for a variety of reasons. Um, we've also now recognised that autism may be in a variety of concerns that we didn't realise before. It may be in eating disorders. One in three of those in eating disorder clinics have autism. Gender dysphoria. Uh, etc. So what we're finding is that we recognize that whatever aspect of psychological concern you may have, then it may be in relationship counseling. It can be in areas of depression or anxiety or personality disorders like borderline personality disorder. 
There is a possibility that some of the people you see are autistic. You need to screen for that because you need to change the actual program. For example, with eating disorders, uh, if you have somebody in a, uh, an eating disorder clinic, for example, you're going to have groups. Now, groups are a social experience, and many autistic teenagers don't like groups because they're vulnerable. They're bullied and teased, and they're not understood, and it's too complicated. However, if one in three in an eating disorder is autistic, have an autistic group, and then they can relax. They can feel understood. They can cope with silence, etc. So in other words, I'm with my tribe. I'm with people that really understand me, the reasons for their eating. and the, In other words, as this is a group that I identify with, they've had the same experiences, I will accept their suggestions. I won't accept it from the psychologist or the, the, the staff. But if one of my peer group makes that suggestion, it has credibility. And I will accept it. But I now have an audience who really appreciate my successes. And I want that audience to see and appreciate my successes. It also means that in autism, you have what we call alexithymia. It's an absence of the ability to explain your thoughts and feelings in words. So when you say, how are you feeling? Standard psychological approach. They say, I don't know. Now, come on. You can tell me all about every T-34 Russian tank design that has ever existed. Why can't you tell me? I can't. I don't know. And it's due to a problem of interception and alexithymia. Interception is the ability to perceive low levels of emotional state. Um then to convert that into speech. That's why when I'm working with the teenagers and so on, uh, I'll say, right, uh, create for me a playlist of music that in the music, in the lyrics, it perfectly describes your feelings, but through music. Uh, go to Google Images, type in what you feel, maybe angry, sad, anxious, and so on. You'll have a 1,000 images. Choose 20 images that express that. You're a great fan of Harry Potter. Choose Dementors and Boggarts. Dementors are depression, boggarts are anxiety. Choose a scene in Harry Potter that describes perfectly or a scene from a movie. And this is why a considerable number of autistic individuals, their career is in the arts because it's their way of expressing their inner self. So going back to gender dysphoria, part of the treatment needs to be to use art and music therapy to explore the self, your thoughts, your feelings, etc. Listen to me, uh, sorry, say, talk, um, etc. In a conversational sense of psychotherapy, may have issues in autism because it's not their natural way of communicating their feelings, face-to-face -face speech. So um, we're also looking at issues such as relationships, employment, and soon aging, and autism. Mm, that's fascinating. Uh, um, what? I have noticed in my work as a psychotherapist that I meet, you know, teenagers and they'll say, I was diagnosed with autism. Just in the recent years, this has happened. I was diagnosed with autism, but they changed that, that diagnosis to ADHD. And now they say it's anxiety. And I'm looking at them going, there seems to be a flippancy or, or a kind of a changing of diagnosis that I hadn't seen before in my work that has kind of crept in. I, I don't know if you've noticed it and whether it's particular in Ireland but it's something that I think must be very discombobulating, especially for somebody who's autistic, but for everybody to get a diagnosis and to be told, no, 
that's not the diagnosis. We're giving you another one. It seems to be subjective to the person who is diagnosing sometimes. Okay. Uh, When I was a kid in the 1950s, I collected stamps. Now, today, collect diagnoses like we used to collect stamps. You're so right. And and you don't usually get autism. It's autism plus. And Mm. what I find is the plus may be more significant in that daily life than the autism itself. So you may have what I will go through with the individual is say, okay, in your daily life of your problems, 60 percent is anxiety, 30 percent is ADHD, 10 percent is autism. So we're going through, okay, as a matter of expediency, your biggest problem is anxiety and we need to focus on that. And once that's reduced, then other things become more apparent and it becomes clearer. But what's needed is a, a, a almost like a multidisciplinary, but a multi-diagnostic approach. What are the dominant features here? How can those be adapted because of autism, like the alexithymia, for example? Um, the, the trouble is that 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 sometimes the, the clinical picture isn't clear, and you have to wait, especially for the girls and the teenagers. And and you make again an assumption on the information that you have at the time. And it then becomes clearer what's going on here is something which is now something that we recognize that we didn't know earlier on. So when the diagnosis of autism occurs, it's not the end of the diagnostic story. And it may also be that the level of autism diminishes over time. And I found, and this is confirmed in the research literature, is autism can diminish over time sufficiently to actually be removed and there are individuals i've seen that i with their agreement have taken away the diagnosis because there are two ways to acquire a skill intuition or instruction and when you have autism pure you can learn to socialize and you can learn to tolerate your sensory sensitivity and if you don't have anxiety You don't need your routines and rituals or to escape into a special interest as a thought blocker. And eventually you crack the code of socialising. It's effortful, but it is successful. And when we look at the diagnostic criteria for autism in DSM-5, Section D requires that it is at a level that causes clinically significant impairment in occupational, social or various aspects of life. Now we've got a personality. That's who they are, but it's not of sufficient degree of expression to warrant medication, psychiatric help, etc. So sometimes I say, you now have the characteristics, but not the disability. Yeah, that's great. And I, I, I would love to ask you more about this because something I've studied a lot is diagnostic inflation. And when is there a kind of concept creep with the boundaries of who qualifies for a diagnosis and who, who doesn't? But I, I feel like if we don't speak about this, I'm going to regret it. So I'm, I want to ask you about something. <laughs> um, you talked about the, the autistic person feeling as though because they've been masking some of their traits, they feel like they have this mask on and they have a false persona. And there's maybe some conflict about that. And I'm not sure, Dr. Atwood, you know, how much you've delved into this with some of your gender dysphoric patients. But, you know, in the last 15 years or so, we've seen a 4,000% increase in children 
seeking help for gender. Now, epidemiologically, that's astronomical, and it can't, I don't believe it can be fully explained by simply more societal acceptance. And we also see about 40% or more of those young people have autism traits or diagnoses. And from working with young people, what I've come to discover, like this is a very typical story. It'll be a young person who maybe had a kind of a, a tomboyish childhood or somewhat gender typical childhood, but felt different for maybe different reasons, maybe their autism or maybe something else. And when they have spent an extended amount of time online Googling answers to questions, which is how young people discover themselves these days, they might ask, why do I feel weird? Why do I hate my breasts? Why is puberty so hard? And a lot of these kids find themselves in online spaces that kind of hint that if you're having these questions, it's because you need to explore your gender. And so what, what starts out as a, a not really exactly gender-related issue can become kind of funneled in a direction. So I'm, I'm very interested in this feeling of uh, having been wearing a mask and feeling like you have a false persona. Um, if there's a young person, kind of like the, the people I've worked with, who through the course of like exploration of certain ideas really veer left and change course i mean these are kids who are kind of making a grand announcement and throwing away their whole wardrobe in order to take on like a new persona and it doesn't seem like oh this is a kid who has been privately nursing these feelings for many many years it seems like oh this is a kid that's been kind of experimenting with ideas and the ideas come first and then the gender dysphoria seems to come later. I'm wondering if you've seen that. You've just described teenage life. Yes, yes, exactly. Is you explore the boundaries, you explore new things. That's what's always happened. In my generation, it was exploring alcohol or cigarettes, for example. That's all we had at the time. Uh, um, and you, the boundaries of how fast you can drive and things like that. And, and you're risk-taking and you're exploring and you don't have the usual conventions and you'll do things that your parents are scared of, but that doesn't matter because they're past their use-by date. That's it. I have my peer group. I'm going to explore and have a sense of identity that I choose in many ways, not what people say I should mm -hmm. be. I want to be me. And that's a major problem uh, in, in autism. Of who am I? When I talk to adults for a diagnostic assessment, I will ask an adult who may be successful in their career, and the question has come up, do, do they have autism? And, uh, and I'll say, this is a very simple question to ask, but I'd like to know your thoughts. I've just met you. Who are you? And there's a gap, a long gap. And they say, I don't know. That's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. now, I'm just going to uh, put, uh, there's a, bright light coming in. Sure, as the sun. sure. He's rising here in Australia. So you, you've really got to look at what is typical adolescence and what may be typical adolescence amplified in autism. As you've seen, you, you've worked in autism for 50 years. Um, when they did away with Asperger's, a lot of people are kind of quite rueful about that. They, a lot of people kind of almost hark back to the days of Asperger's as, as a handy understanding or delineation between the differences have you any views on this i have my personal and private views oh. 
And sometimes diagnosis and committees aren't um, considering the clinical consequences and the consequences to individuals of changing the name. And I can see intellectually there can be a desire to abandon eponymous, named after people, conditions. Um, but the diagnostic criteria are um, often American, American Psychiatric Association. And, and I am concerned that I don't see autism as a psychiatric condition. And I think autism is being captured by the psychiatrists and they perceive it as a mental disorder to be treated. We're talking of treatment here to be treated and, and removed. Um, and so they make decisions which are often related to politics and egos uh, without really thinking of the long term consequences. For many people, the term Asperger's was neutral. It was a positive one. And there wasn't a, a movement against it from autistic individuals themselves. Um, but the, it, the decision was made to, to get rid of that, but without consulting not only autistic people, but clinicians. I was never consulted. And when I talked to other people, I said, no, nobody asked me. No. And I said, hang on, we're, we're the brains trust. We're the, we're the wisdom of it. But nobody asked us what we thought. You had a committee that meant met in isolation as academics, and you made a decision to do that. But you don't necessarily know how changing the name is going to affect people. And the general consensus has been that the term Asperger syndrome has been abandoned without um, thinking of the consequences. I'd like to ask you about um, something that I, I've witnessed. A lot of young people are very fixated on labels. You talked about this with the stamp collection, right? A lot of young people kind of collect diagnoses. But there's also kids who self-diagnose. And I've seen some odd things lately, and there's been actually some academic papers written about this, about young people going on, for example, YouTube or TikTok and uh, binge watching about Tourette's, for example, or about even autism stim, self-stimulatory behaviors, and beginning to adopt those behaviors. I'm wondering if you've seen anything like that in the world of autism where you work. Do, do you see ever that young people are maybe... Like you said, this is a kind of a normal teenage thing, right? But of course, the way social media and the internet works has just ramped up all of these typical adolescent behaviors. So is there a parallel with kids who maybe want an autism diagnosis and maybe amplify traits that they have? Like, I'm wondering if there's a parallel here. Okay. Years ago, and it must still exist today, one of the great problems for medical students was that they learned about various diseases. They saw them within themselves. Mm. So that was a problem. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, you, you don't, but you've heard about it. Oh, this may be explaining things. But what's happened in modern society is that we have access for a greater diversity, and we're exploring further and giving names and terms and descriptions that previously was unavailable. Uh, kids would not have a YouTube to go and explore that. They wouldn't have access to the medical uh, textbooks, etc. So this is new information. And obviously, in trying to understand who am I, the, the concept of self, and 
and so on. You will get lots of information and you find that. And it seems to be a partial fit, but you don't know really uh, how much it fits. It seems to be, yep, I, I have difficulty making and keeping friends. Yeah, I'm the, those noises that I hear, oh, oh they're, they're terrible, etc. cetera. Uh, and all the things in autism are things that occur in the ordinary population. There's nothing unique. It's the pattern that counts. And it, it's how you may amplify those characteristics. So uh, we may get now, it, it's not so much children, it's more late teens have explored this themselves. And they say, I have learned about this, or um, it's something that was in a film or a, a magazine article and so on, and that describes me. Uh, and then we will look at validation of that. And one of the things that we have to check is that as a diagnostician, I've got to check, are there answers, textbook answers or YouTube answers? In other words, are they faking it? Are they, I've learned, oh, I've got to say, oh, yes, I'm very sensitive. I have uh, hyperacusis, etc. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and, then, and then I'm quoted um, some of the things from my own books. And I think, yeah, I'll say that. Um, and I, I, I got the example. So you, you've got, what you do is you say, can you give me an example? And then you know, ah, that's not in a book. That is a genuine example of that. So you, you've got to check the authenticity and validity of those descriptions, because sometimes there's a wanting an answer and it, it seems to fit. And I've got to check, does it actually fit? See, I'm fascinated by this. Something I've studied was uh, the kind of um, repressed memory epidemic and the multiple personality disorder epidemic that happened in the 90s. And, and I was fascinated by it because I think the line between an authentic psychological experience and like almost a, an absorbed one is very blurry. So I think... You know, if if I think about, let's say there's a distressed 15-year-old who's been watching YouTube for 10 hours a day, she might genuinely begin to, to feel those things or have those ticks or whatever the expression may be. And so I think it's just, it's a fascinating time of life because adolescents are so malleable that it's sometimes challenging to, to tease apart what's authentic and what's maybe inherited for now, right? Or adopted yeah. for now. This is a modern phenomenon with access to the information technology and so on is is planting seeds. And we've got to be very careful about what information people are going to. Uh, the, the Internet has its value in information, but it depends on how the person perceives it and use it, uses it. I, I remember uh, just to, to turn a little bit a different direction. I remember speaking with a doctor who works with autism. And he said that he, he had seen a lot of links with activism and autism because it can be so um, it can be so by the book, social policing, policing people's rules, hyperfixation, the professor, the encyclopedia of knowing it. Have you noticed uh, links between activism and autism? What do you mean by activism? Um, what do I mean by activism? I mean a very intense form of advocacy that can be all-encompassing for the individual 
and can um, pretty much take over their life because it's 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 a very much they are the yes. cause and the cause becomes them. And maybe very rule based, like everyone in my family must abide by this morality or else you're bad people, like like that sort of thing. Stella? Okay, it, that, but it also includes an intolerance of those that don't conform. One of the major characteristics of autism is anxiety. And in coping with anxiety, you're into control. And so what the person does is if you can't control your emotions, you control people. Wow. And so that's what's occurring is control. Wow. Yes, that's very powerful. Wow, that's fascinating. And again, I think you lifted this up. That is a normal thing that occurs in the neurotypical population, too. I mean, people who are bad at emotional regulation become really controlling over others. And maybe with autism, this happens maybe to a greater degree. But I think you're so wise to point that out. That's a very powerful idea. Now, thank you for that comment. And, and I'm actually aware of time. Yes. <laughs> and, and I am sure we could continue for hours to go. But can I ask you to consider a sense of not to close immediately, but to look at any questions or issues we've not addressed so far. I have one. Um, um, I often work with autistic uh, teenagers who have autistic parents, and I feel that can be a very specific challenge. Do, do you have any insight to help that particular? I think it's quite common. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> guess, can we carry on for the whole week? Um, it, it does mean that I see autism as a, a different culture. And it can be very, very black and white. So there may be two very different parenting styles between the neurotypical and the Aspie parent. And, and that can cause conflict and confusion because the um, neurotypical may be acceptance, love, flexibility, accommodating, and so on. Whereas the autistic parent may be discipline, consequences, rigidity, and that's what will change people's behavior. Um, and so what I do is I speak two languages, is I may explain something to the neurotypical in neurotypical speak and autism speak to the autistic parent, because they will have their own perceptions, objectives, expectations, etc. So I speak Aspergerese for that individual. And I may explain the child in a way that they could understand. So it is being bilingual. Okay, can you just give us an example of like one concept in neurotypical language and share it again in, in Aspergerese? Okay, if we're talking about teenagers, one of the things is, is that the autistic parent may say, why do you need so many friends? This is my house. I don't want all your, they're all noisy and smelly, and, and they keep interrupting, and, and, and I've got to feed them, and things like this. <laughs> no, when they come round, we can't afford it. Why don't they pay for it? And, oh, and I say, no, no, hang on. In your childhood, you enjoyed solitude. You had your home was your castle, and that for you is still very, very important. But uh, your son or daughter is actually very different in that sense, and they really enjoy socialising. It's a thrill for them. You have that computer playing your computer games. Her thrill is having friends around and being accepted by others. Your thrill is the job that you do and how wonderful you are at problem-solving, and your boss thinks you're excellent in how you solve problems. 
But your daughter wants a social network and it's looking at a compromise in that situation because that gives her so much pleasure. It is difficult for you to understand because it's not part of you. That's great. Well, Dr. Atwood, I think we could keep going for hours, but it is probably time to stop here. We, we just want to thank you so much for joining us on our program. It was really fascinating and uh, it's been great to have your insights. Thanks. It's going to promote quite a bit of discussion. It will. Yes, we hope so. That's the point. That's what you want. Yes. That's right. Thank you, Dr. Atwood. Thank you. The more discussion, the better outcomes everybody will have. So, you know, so long as people are are willing to be civilised, I think discussion is always the better path. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.